Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 20 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Philippa of Hainaut, Chapter 2, Part 1. In the first years of her marriage, Queen Philippa had been the constant attendant on her husband in his campaigns. The annals of the year 1346 display her character in a more brilliant light, as the sagacious ruler of his kingdom and the victorious leader of his army. After the order of the garter had been fully established, King Edward reminded his valiant knights and nobles that, with him, they made a vow to assist distressed ladies. He then specified that the Countess de Montfort particularly required the aid of his chivalry, for her lord was held in captivity by Philip de Valois in the towers of the Louvre while the countess was endeavoring to uphold the cause of her infant son against the whole power of France. He signified his intention of giving his personal support to the heroic countess, and of leaving Queen Philippa as regent of England during his absence. On St. John the Baptist's day, the king took leave of Queen Philippa, appointing the Earl of Kent as her assistant in the government of England. The name of her young son, Lionel, a child of eight years old, was associated with his mother in the regency. Philippa bade farewell to the darling of her heart, her son Edward, then in his sixteenth year. This young hero accompanied his royal sire in order to win his spurs on the soil of France. The exploits of the heroic boy are well known, but it is not quite so well known that he was opposed, at the field of Chessy, to his mother's nearest connections, to her uncle, Philip of Valois, and even to Sir John of Hainaut, the favorite relative who had ever been treated by the queen as if he were her father. In the true spirit of a mercenary soldier, Sir John had left the service of his niece's husband, in whose employment he had spent the best part of his life, merely because the king of France gave him a higher salary. The first English military dispatch ever written was addressed to Queen Philippa and her council, by Michael Northborough, King Edward's warlike chaplain. It contains a most original and graphic detail of the Battle of Chessy. It is dated at the siege, before the town of Calais, for the Battle of Chessy was but an interlude of that famous siege. It was now Philippa's turn to do battle royal with a king. As a diversion in favor of France, David of Scotland advanced into England, a fortnight after the Battle of Chessy, and burned the suburbs of York. At this juncture, Philippa herself hastened to the relief of her northern subjects. 
Froissart has detailed with great spirit the brilliant conduct of the queen at this crisis. The queen of England, who was very anxious to defend her kingdom, in order to show she was in earnest about it, came herself to Newcastle upon Tyne. She took up her residence there to wait for her forces. On the morrow, the king of Scots, with full 40,000 men, advanced within three short miles of the town of Newcastle. He sent to inform the queen that, if her men were willing to come forth from the town, he would wait and give them battle. Philippa answered, that she accepted his offer, and that her barons would risk their lives for the realm of their lord the king. The queen's army drew up in order for battle at Neville's Cross. Philippa advanced among them mounted on her white charger, and entreated her men to do their duty well, in defending the honor of their lord the king, and urged them, for the love of God, to fight manfully. They promised her that they would acquit themselves loyally to the utmost of their power, and perhaps better than if the king had been there in person. The queen then took her leave of them, and recommended them to the protection of God and St. George. There is no vulgar personal bravado of the fighting woman in the character of Philippa. Her courage was holy moral courage, and her feminine feelings of mercy and tenderness led her, when she had done all that a great queen could do, by encouraging her army to withdraw from the work of carnage, and pray for her invaded kingdom while the battle joined. The English archers gained the battle, which was fought on the lands of Lord Neville. King David was taken prisoner on his homeward retreat, but not without making the most gallant resistance. When the Queen of England, who had tarried in Newcastle while the battle was fought, heard that her army had won the victory, she mounted on her white palfrey and went to the battlefield. She was informed on the way that the King of Scots was the prisoner of a squire named John Copeland, who had rode off with him, no one knew whither. The queen ordered him to be sought out, and told that he had done what was not agreeable to her in carrying off her prisoner without leave. All the rest of the day the queen and her army remained on the battlefield they had won, and then returned to Newcastle for the night. Next day Philippa wrote with her own hand to John Copeland, commanding him to surrender the king of Scots to her. John answered, in a manner most contumacious to the female majesty, then swaying the scepter of England with so much ability and glory. He replied to Philippa that he would not give up his royal prisoner to woman or child, but only to his own lord, King Edward, for to him he had sworn allegiance and not to any woman. There spoke the haughty spirit of feudality, which disdained to obey a female regent, although then encamped on a victorious field. The queen was greatly troubled at the obstinacy of this northern squire, and scarcely knew how to depend on the assurance he added, bidding her knight tell the queen she might depend on his taking good care of King David. In this dilemma, Philippa wrote letters to the king her husband, which she sent off directly to Calais. In these letters she informed him of the state of his kingdom. The king ordered John Copeland to come to him at Calais, who, having placed his prisoner in a strong castle in Northumberland, set out and landed near Calais. When the king of England saw the squire, he took him by the hand, saying, Ha, welcome, my squire, who by thy valor hast captured mine adversary, the king of Scots. John Copeland fell on one knee and replied, 
if god out of his great kindness has given me the king of scotland and permitted me to conquer him in arms no one ought to be jealous of it for god can if he pleases send his grace to a poor squire as well as to a great lord sire do not take it amiss if i do not surrender king david to the orders of my lady queen for i hold my lands of you and not of her and my oath is to you and not to her unless indeed through choice king edward answered john the loyal service you have done us and our esteem for your valor is so great that it may well serve you as an excuse and shame fall on all those who bear you any ill will you will now return home and take your prisoner the king of scotland and convey him to my wife and by way of remuneration i assign lands as near your house as you can choose them to the amount of five hundred pounds a year for you and your heirs john copeland left calais the third day after his arrival and returned to england when he was come home he assembled his friends and neighbors and in company with them took the king of scots and carried him to york where he presented him in the name of king edward to queen philippa and made such excuses that she was satisfied and great magnanimity philippa displayed in being content with the happy result how many women would have borne an unextinguishable hatred to john copeland for a far less offence than refusing obedience to a delegated sceptre philippa lodged david in the tower of london he was conducted by her orders in grand procession through the streets mounted on a tall black war-horse that every one might recognize his person in case of escape next day she sailed for calais and landed three days before all saints the arrival of philippa occasioned a stir of gladness in the besieging camp her royal lord held a grand court to welcome his victorious queen and made a magnificent feat for her ladies philippa brought with her the flower of female nobility of england many ladies being anxious to accompany her to calais in order to see fathers husbands and brothers all engaged in this famous siege while queen philippa was encamped with her royal lord before calais the young count of flanders who had been kept by edward in his army as a sort of captive ran away to the king of france to avoid his marriage engagements with a princess royal a circumstance which caused great grief and indignation to the queen and her family but the conduct of the young lord of flanders can scarcely excite wonder for edward the third certainly forgetting son metier du roy was in a strong league with the count's rebellious subject the brewer von artevelt who under a pretense of reform had overturned the government of flanders and delivered up his count to the king of england the states of flanders having betrothed him to the eldest daughter of edward without consulting his inclinations the young count at last requested an interview with his betrothed what passed is not known but the young couple seemed on the most friendly terms with each other and the queen supposing the charms of the young isabella had captivated the unwilling heart of count louis with her usual generosity requested he might be left unguarded fancying he would remain isabella's willing prisoner but the escape of the count followed soon after to the great exasperation of edward the third as isabella afterwards made a love match the whole scheme had probably been concerted between her and her betrothed for life in the fourteenth century was an acted romance 
Meantime, the brave defenders of Calais were so much reduced by famine as to be forced to capitulate. At first, Edward resolved to put them all to the sword. By the persuasions of Sir Walter Mowney, he somewhat relaxed from his bloody intentions. He bade Sir Walter, says Froissart, return to Calais with the following terms. Tell the governor of Calais that the garrison and inhabitants shall be pardoned, excepting six of the principal citizens, who must surrender themselves to death, with ropes round their necks, bareheaded and barefooted, bringing the keys of the town and castle in their hands. Sir Walter returned to the brave governor of Calais, John de Vienne, who was waiting for him on the battlements, and told him all he had been able to gain from the king. The lord of Vienne went to the marketplace, and caused the bell to be rung, upon which all the inhabitants assembled in the town hall. He then related to them what he had said, and the answers he had received, and that he could not obtain better conditions. Then they broke into lamentations of grief and despair, so that the hardest heart would have had compassion on them, and their valiant governor, Lord de Vienne, wept bitterly. After a short pause, the most wealthy citizen of Calais, by name Eustace Saint-Pierre, rose up and said, Gentlemen, both high and low, it would be pity to suffer so many of our countrymen to die through famine. It would be highly meritorious in the eyes of our Savior, if such misery could be prevented. If I die to serve my dear townsmen, I trust I shall find grace before the tribunal of God. I name myself first of the six. When Eustace had done speaking, his fellow citizens all rose up and almost adored him, casting themselves on their knees with tears and groans. Then another citizen rose up and said he would be the second to Eustace. His name was John Dare. After him, John Wisant, who was very rich in money and lands, and kinsman to Eustace and John. His example was followed by Peter Wysant, his brother. Two others then offered themselves, which completed the number demanded by King Edward. The governor mounted a small horse, for it was with difficulty he could walk, and conducted them through the gate to the barriers, he said to Sir Walter, who was there waiting for him. I deliver up to you, as governor of Calais, these six citizens, and swear to you they were, and are to this day, the most wealthy and respectable inhabitants of the town. I beg of you, gentle sir, that of your goodness you would beseech the king that they may not be put to death. I cannot answer what the king will do with them, replied Sir Walter, but you may depend upon this, that I will do all I can to save them. The barriers were then opened, and the six citizens were conducted to the pavilion of King Edward. When Sir Walter Monny had presented these six citizens to the king, they fell upon their knees, and with uplifted hands said, Most gallant king, see before you six citizens of Calais, who have been capital merchants, and who bring you the keys of the town and castle. We surrender ourselves to your absolute will and pleasure, in order to save the remainder of our fellow citizens and inhabitants of Calais, who have suffered great distress and misery. Condescend, then, out of your nobleness, to have compassion on us. All the English barons, knights, and squires, that were assembled there in great numbers, wept at this sight. But King Edward eyed them with angry looks, for he hated much the people of Calais, because of the great losses he had suffered at sea by them. Forthwith, 
he ordered the heads of the six citizens to be struck off. All present entreated the king to be more merciful, but he would not listen to them. Then Sir Walter Mowney spoke. Ah, gentle king, I beseech you restrain your anger. Tarnish not your noble reputation by such an act as this. Truly the whole world will cry out on your cruelty, if you should put to death these six worthy persons. For all this, the king gave a wink to his marshal and said, I will have it so, and ordered the headsman to be sent for, adding, The men of Calais had done him such damage, it was fit they suffered for it. At this, the queen of England, who was very near her lying in, fell on her knees before King Edward, and with tears said, Ah, oh, gentle sir, sithence I have crossed the sea with great peril to see you. I have never asked you one favor. Now I most humbly ask as a gift, for the sake of the son of the blessed Mary, and as a proof of your love to me, the lives of these six men. King Edward looked at her for some time in silence, and then said, Ah, lady, I wish you had been anywhere else than here. You have entreated in such a manner that I cannot refuse you. I therefore give them you. Do as you please with them. The queen conducted the six citizens to her apartment, and had the halters taken from about their necks. After which she knew clothed them, and served them with a plentiful dinner. She then presented each with six nobles, and had them escorted out of the camp in safety. The French historians, who, from mortified national pride, have endeavored to invalidate this beautiful incident, pretend to do so by proving, as an inconsistency in the character of Philippa, that she took possession, a few days after the surrender of Calais, of the tenements belonging to one of her protégés, John Dare. They have likewise impugned the patriotism of Eustace Saint-Pierre, because he remained in Calais as Edward's subject. But King Edward granted immunity to all those who swore allegiance to him and stayed in Calais, while those who chose expatriation, like John Dare, forfeited their tenements, which they certainly could not take with them. Now, Froissart has shown that Edward presented his Calasian captives to his queen to do with them what she pleased. This transfer gave Philippa rights over their persons and property, which she used most generously in regard to the first, but retained her claims over the possessions of the town, of those who refused to become subjects to her husband. The very fact, proved by deeds and charters, that Philippa became proprietress of John Dare's houses, greatly authenticates the statement of Froissart. It would have been pleasant to record that Philippa restored the value of John Dare's tenements, but biography, unlike poetry or romance, seldom permits us to portray a character approaching perfection. Truth compels us to display the same person, by terms, merciful or ferocious, generous or acquisitive, according to the mutability of human passion. The philosophic observer of life will see no outrage on probability in the facts that Philippa saved John Dare's life one day and took possession of his vacated spoils the next week. The king, after he had bestowed these six citizens on Queen Philippa, called to him Sir Walter Mowney and his two marshals, the earls of Warwick and Stafford, and said, my lords, here are the keys of Calais, town and castle. Go and take possession. Directions were given for the castle to be prepared with proper lodgings for the king and queen. When this had been done, the king and queen mounted their steeds and rode towards the town, 
which they entered with the sound of trumpets, drums, and all sorts of warlike instruments. The king remained in Calais, till the queen was brought to bed of a daughter named Margaret. Three days before Edward and Philippa returned to England, the Emperor Louis of Bavaria died, who had married Marguerite of Hainaut, the eldest sister of the queen. Towards the close of the same year, Edward was elected Emperor of Germany, an honor of which he very wisely declined to accept. At this time, it was considered that the royal Philippa and her husband had touched the height of human prosperity. With the exception of the trifling disappointment in the disposal of the hand of her eldest daughter, the year 1347 closed most auspiciously for Philippa and her warlike lord. But the military triumphs of England brought with them some corruption of manners. At that time, the jewels and ornaments that once decorated the females of France were transferred to the persons of the English ladies, who, out of compliment to the queen's successful generalship, and the personal heroism of the valiant Countess of Montfort, her kinswoman, began to give themselves the airs of warriors. They wore small jeweled daggers as ornaments at their bosoms, and their caps, formed of cambric or lawn, were cut like the aperture of a knight's helmet. But these objectionable caps brought their own punishment with them, being hideously unbecoming. The church was preparing suitable remonstrances against these unfeminine proceedings, when all pride, whether royal or national, was at once signally confounded by the awful visitation of pestilence, which approached the shores of England, 1348. This pestilence was called, emphatically, from its effects on the human body, the Black Death. Every household in London was smitten, and some wholly exterminated. Nor did Philippa's royal family escape, for the cruel pestilence robbed her of the fairest of her daughters, under circumstances of peculiar horror. The beauty and graces of the second daughter of Philippa, called the Princess Joanna of Woodstock, were such as to be the themes of every minstrel. She was in her fifteenth year, when Alfonso, king of Castile, demanded her in marriage for his heir, the infant Pedro, who afterwards attained an undesirable celebrity under the name of Pedro the Cruel. The princess had been nurtured and educated by that virtuous lady, Marie St. Paul, the widow Countess of Pembroke, to whose munificent love of learning Cambridge owes one of her noblest foundations. As a reward for rearing and educating the young princess, King Edward gave the countess, her governess, the manor of Stroud in Kent, with many expressions of gratitude, calling her his dearest cousin Marie de St. Paul. The fair Joanna was spared the torment of becoming the wife of the most furious man in Europe by the more merciful plague of the Black Death. The royal bride sailed for Bordeaux at the latter end of the summer of 1348, while her father-in-law, the King of Castile, traveled to the frontier city Bayonne with the infant Don Pedro to meet her. King Edward's loyal citizens of Bordeaux escorted the Princess Joanna as far as Bayonne, in the cathedral of which city she was to give her hand to Pedro. On the very evening of her triumphal entry into Bayonne, the pestilence, out of all the assembled multitudes, seized on the fair young Plantagenet as a victim. It terminated her existence in a few hours. Her Spanish bridegroom and the king, his father, followed her funeral procession on the very day and hour she was appointed to give her hand as a bride, at the altar of that cathedral wherein she was buried. 
a deep grief of the parents of joanna is visible in the latin letters written by edward the third to the king of castile to don pedro and to the queen of castile if the latinity of these letters will not bear the criticism of the classical scholar they are nevertheless lofty in sentiment and breathe an expression of parental tenderness seldom to be found in state papers your daughter and ours he says to the queen of castile was by nature wonderfully endowed with gifts and graces but little does it now avail to praise them or specify the charms of that beloved one who is o oh, grief of heart forever taken from us yet the debt of mortality must be paid however deeply sorrow may drive the thorn and our hearts be transpierced by anguish nor will our sighs and tears cancel the inevitable law of nature christ the celestial spouse has taken the maiden bride to be his spouse she in her innocent and immaculate years has been transferred to the virgin choir in heaven where for us below she will perpetually intercede the queen must have imagined that her royal and handsome progeny was doomed to a life of celibacy for some extraordinary accident or other had hitherto prevented the marriage of her daughters her heroic son edward had been on the point of marrying several princesses without his nuptials ever being brought to a conclusion a long attachment had subsisted between him and his beautiful cousin joanna daughter of his uncle edmund earl of kent and the lady had remained unwedded till her twenty-fifth year after being divorced from the earl of salisbury to whom she had been contracted in her infancy queen philippa had a great objection to her son's union with his cousin on account of the flightiness of the lady's disposition after vainly hoping for the royal consent to her union with her cousin joanna gave her hand to sir thomas holland but still the black prince remained a bachelor after the grand crisis of the capture of calais philippa resided chiefly in england our country felt the advantage of the beneficent presence of its queen philippa had in her youth established the woolen manufactories she now turned her sagacious intellect towards working the coal mines in tyndale a branch of national industry whose inestimable benefits need not be dilated upon the mines had been worked with great profit in the reign of henry the third but the convulsions of the scottish wars had stopped their progress philippa had estates in tyndale and she had long resided in its vicinity during edward's scottish campaigns it was an infallible result that wherever this great queen directed her attention wealth and national prosperity speedily followed well did her actions illustrate her flemish motto ike rude muke which obsolete words may be rendered i labor or toil much soon after her return from calais she obtained a grant from her royal lord giving permission to her bailiff allen de strother to work the mines of alderneston which had been worked in the days of king henry the third and edward the first from this reopening of the tyndale mines by philippa proceeded our coal trade which during the reign of her grandson henry the fourth enriched the great merchant whittington and the city of london the queen continued to increase the royal family the princess mary who afterwards married the duke of bretagne prince william born at windsor died in his twelfth year edmund afterwards duke of york and blanche of the tower were born before the surrender of calais the princess margaret and thomas of woodstock afterwards 
Edward's presents to his queen on these occasions were munificent. One of his grants is thus affectionately worded. July 20. King orders his exchequer to pay our Philippa, our dearest consort, 500 pounds, to liquidate the expenses of her churching at Windsor. This was on occasion of the birth of Prince William, Philippa's second son of that name. Philippa did not disdain the alliance of the great English nobles. Her objection to the union of Edward, her chivalric heir, with Joanna the Fair, arose solely from disapprobation of the moral character of that princess. Her next surviving son, Lionel, she not only united to an English maiden, but undertook the worship and education of his young bride, as may be learned from this document. January 1, 1347. Edward III gives to his dearest consort, Philippa, the wardship of the person of Elizabeth de Berg, daughter of the deceased Earl of Ulster, slain in Ireland, with her lands and lordships, until Lionel, yet in tender years, shall take the young Elizabeth to wife. Two of Philippa's sons were married to English women by her special agency. End of section 20. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.